Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor David Eldridge. All right, as Matt mentioned, it is Palm Sunday. So this is the first day of the last week of Jesus's life. First day of the last week of Jesus's life, final entry into Jerusalem. And Mark's gospel, which is the one we're going through, is his only time in Jerusalem. From the other gospels, we know that he went to Jerusalem a couple of other, at least a couple of other times. But in Mark's gospel, we don't see that at all. This is his, his, his first and only entry into Jerusalem. And what we want to look at is something he did on Sunday, something he did on Monday, and something that he did on Tuesday. So we'll do that in two chunks. First on Sunday, chapter 11, verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem, so that's Jesus, his 12 apostles, and a larger crowd of disciples. As they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one's ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So the headline on the triumphal entry, that's what your Bible probably calls that. The triumphal entry, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as the king, something like that. The headline is, Israel missed her Messiah. That's what you see. That's really the, the upshot of those 11 verses. Israel missed Jesus coming to her as a king. So Jesus has spent three years walking. That's what he's done. We've seen him in a boat a couple of times, but if he's on land, he's walking. He's never ridden anything. And now with two miles left, on this last leg of his public ministry, he chooses to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's a very deliberate act on his part. He's not tired. He's not worn out. His feet aren't sore. He's, he's communicating something by riding in on that donkey. And what he's communicating is, I'm the king. Now, that may feel really subtle to us. There are several things going on. Jesus commandeers a donkey. That's something only kings can do. Jesus rides a donkey that's never been ridden. That's an animal that's never been ridden that, that signifies it's for a holy or a sacred purpose. But he, he fulfills very deliberately Zechariah 9.9. There are several prophecies, many prophecies actually, that Jesus fulfills. He, he doesn't really have control over. There are things that are done to him. This is something that he, he, he circles it and says, I'm going to do that. And so he gets a donkey and he rides into Jerusalem during Passover. So that's a time you have lots of pilgrims in the city. Uh, the, the air would be kind of filled with thoughts about deliverance because Passover, they're looking back to when God delivered them from Egyptian slavery through Moses. And so there's this sense of we're enslaved right now. We're under this Roman oppression. We want God to deliver us. So that's kind of the air that people are breathing. And Jesus comes in again in a you could say even in a provocative way, 
on a donkey. That's what kings do. And again, it's a deliberate example or deliberate fulfillment, excuse me, of Zechariah 9.9. But nobody really gets it. The people who were with him seem to get it. We see their response. It says the people that went before him and the people who were behind him. So that makes me think of the crowd of people that were traveling with him. So that would be his disciples and maybe some people who were just part of the crowd. Last week we talked about crowd, disciples, and apostles. And so there's probably some people in the crowd as well who are not not following Jesus in their hearts yet, but they're still interested in him and maybe still they're, they're still um, intrigued by him. And they seem to get it. They respond in a way that seems appropriate for a king. They lay down their cloaks in front of him and lay down branches. We know from John, those are palm branches, and they say, Hosanna, which is a shout of praise. And they say, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there seems to be some some level of recognition among that group that Jesus is somebody other than just a man, that there's something special about him, maybe even that he's making a claim to being king. But when they enter the city... It's kind of, it's crickets. Mark's version, it's the, it's the non-triumphal entry. There's, no, there's nothing. He enters a city and nobody seems to take notice. He goes and looks around the temple and he leaves. It's pretty anticlimactic. You get a little bit more celebration in the other gospels, but remember Mark, you know, he's telling his story in such a way to say, hey, Jesus is the Messiah, he's the son of God and we need to follow him. And what we see here is that his people in general, they didn't do that. The nation of Israel, they didn't get it. Jesus comes to them as a king, but they don't see him as a king. Even with whatever level of hoopla there was with this crowd that was with Jesus, when they entered Jerusalem, it, it's not moving the needle. It's not drawing anybody's attention. Again, nobody seems to be responding at all to him. So that's Sunday, Monday and Tuesday. The next day, so that's Monday, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as Jesus taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill Jesus, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. On Tuesday morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. So that those two stories are they're meant to be read together. It's a it's a sandwich. Fig tree is the bread and the cleansing of the temple is the meat. And just like when you're eating a sandwich, you taste all the flavors at once. That's what we're that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to interpret both of those stories in light of one another. Fig tree in light of the temple, temple in light of the fig tree, and the headline for both of those is God is going to judge Israel. That's what he's doing. The triumphal entry, Israel, at at a minimum, doesn't recognize Jesus as king. And you may even say rejects Jesus as king, but may feel too strong. 
These second two stories, fig tree and temple, God will judge Israel. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, the idea of wine and wineskins. Here you see Jesus is saying there's about to be an exchange. God is setting aside the old wineskin of Israel and the temple, and there's going to be a new wineskin, the church with a capital C, and the cross. That's what's going on here. It won't happen for 40 years, about in 70 AD, but Jesus says that's what's coming. That fig tree thing is really hard for some people. It, it feels not Jesus-like. It's like, is that what happens when Jesus is hungry? It's a Snickers commercial. Like, is this Jesus when he gets hungry? He's like, all right, there's no figs, and so curse the tree. And so the tree's dead. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily what's going on there. It's a, it's a picture for us. Both of these things, the fig tree and the temple, they're prophetic Acts. We see this in the Old Testament in multiple places. There's a few on the screen behind me that you can look up. But again, there's more than that where God speaks to a prophet and says, don't just say these words, do these things. Act out what's going to happen. I think God might do that to get people's attention. Sometimes when we just keep hearing words like blah, 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 blah. You know, it's Isaiah still talking, 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 talking. But when Isaiah walks around in his underwear without shoes on for three years, you go, all right. Why, why are you not wearing clothes? Like that would, that would get most of our attention. And he says, funny, you should ask. Here's why I'm not wearing any clothes. Because this is a symbol of what's gonna happen to Egypt. We're putting our trust in Egypt. Egypt's about to be taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Jeremiah, why are you walking around with a yoke on your shoulders? Are you going plowing today? No, let me tell you why I'm walking around with a yoke on my shoulders. It's because we're about to be uh, we're about to be sent into captivity. We're gonna have the yoke of the Babylonians put on us. So it, this, it, it gets people's attention just like it would for, for you or for me. And both of these things that Jesus is, is doing, they're prophetic acts. He's, he's acting out this impending judgment on Israel and on the temple specifically. Throughout the Old Testament, the fig tree is a metaphor or a picture of Israel, and there are times in the Old Testament where that fig tree is said to not have fruit, and that's what we see going on here. Jesus, he didn't hurt the tree's feelings. He's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a prop, for lack of a better word, in this act that Jesus um, is doing. It, it, he's communicating to his people. This is what's going to happen, and it does get people's attention. It gets our attention, because this, this is the only destructive miracle in the Bible. Every other time Jesus uses his power, it's to give life, it's to save, it's, it's to deliver, it's to heal. This is the only time we see his power used to, to destroy something. And it does get our attention. It got the attention of his disciples. And they're going, what, what just happened? And it's a, again, it's a teaching moment for him. And so that, that's the bread. God is going to judge Israel. Why? Because there's no fruit. The same reason he cursed the fig tree, there's no fruit. That means he's going, to curse, he's going to judge Israel for the same reason. There's no fruit. What does it mean for there not to be a fruit? For not to be fruit? And that's when we look at the, the cleansing of the temple. It helps us understand that. What does it mean for there to be no fruit? So the temple's this huge complex, and there's one area where the Gentiles can go. It's called the court of the Gentiles. It's the only place on the temple grounds that Gentiles are allowed. And there's a fence that goes around the temple proper. It's a wall. And uh, the Gentiles aren't allowed to go on the other side of that wall or they can be killed. And so if you're a Gentile, which I am and most of you are, we could not cross that 
wall. We would have to stay in what's called the court of the Gentiles. And in a world where God dwells in the temple, that is, that's as close as you get to him. If I'm, for me, that's as, that wall behind me on the screen, that's as close as I can get to God. I can't go any farther in because I'm not a Jew. So for me, that, that's where I pray. That's where I worship. If I want to meet God, that's the place where I can go. So Jesus gets to Jerusalem. He inspects the temple on Sunday. And then Monday he goes back and there's, it's kind of like, a, it's a market. It's, it's uh, going on. There's a lot of activity. There's people carrying merchandise through this court of the Gentiles. You got folks who are set up who are exchanging money and they needed to. Part of the job, if you were a Jew, part of your responsibility was to pay a tax to the temple every year for the ongoing operation of the temple and it had to be given in the local currency. So you'd bring your pesos and your francs and your lira and your yen and you turn it into dollars so you can pay the temple tax. And so somebody had, there had to be people who changed the money. And so that was a necessary service. Part of what you would do as a Jew, if you wanted to worship God on Passover, is there were sacrifices that you had to make and there had to be certain animals and they had to be of a certain quality. You couldn't just bring any lamb. It had to be a lamb that I think was a year old and without blemish and without, it couldn't be, it had to be perfect in, in some ways. And that might be, you might not have a lamb like that. Or you may have traveled from a really long distance and you can't bring a lamb that far. And so there needed to be people who sold lambs that were acceptable for sacrifice. And so these guys were performing services that, weren't just helpful. They, in some ways, you could say they were necessary for worship, for people to be obedient to the law. They needed some things. They needed to be able to change their money and they needed to be able to get animals that were acceptable for sacrifice. I don't think that Jesus has a problem with that per se. That's not what I'm seeing here. I don't, they may have been price gouging. They may have been ripping people off. That doesn't say that. And I don't think that was Jesus's biggest issue. It seems to me that the issue is where they're doing it. More so than what they're doing. Again, what they're doing is actually helpful for the people who are coming to worship. I think it's where they're doing it that causes him so much concern. And his his critique is that this place, it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. That includes the Gentiles. This should be a place where they can worship, where they can be with God, where they can engage, where they can meet God. That's what this place should be, but look what y'all have done to it. Like I I can almost hear him saying to the temple leaders, could could you worship in a place like this? If this was going on, could you actually pray? If you've got animals wandering around, people basically a livestock auction going on over here and people changing money over here and everybody's carrying all their stuff right through the place where you're trying to pray, could you do it? I think that's what he's saying. Why here? This is literally the only place these guys can come to worship. This is it for them. This is as close as they can get. And look what you've done basically to their sanctuary. How how does that make sense to you? You know the purpose of this building. It was to be a place where people met with God and look what you've done to it. How are these people supposed to meet him when all of this commercial activity is going on in the one place that they're allowed to go? 
You've made it a den of robbers. Don't, again, I don't think he's saying you guys are thieves, you're stealing from them. A den is a place where robbers feel comfortable. What you've done is you've created this system where if people pay the right amount of money and people get the right animal to sacrifice, they feel fine. They check the boxes. It has nothing to do with heart anymore. We're not interested in whether or not people are actually engaging with God. We're not interested in the fact whether or not people are actually becoming more like him. We have all of this religious activity going on and we feel great about it. We're not even looking at what's going on in hearts anymore. We've missed, with this building, we've missed the spirit of what God intended. He intended for this to be a place where people meet him. And look what we've done to it. I think that's what he's saying. It's like a fig tree that has leaves. It looks like it's healthy. It looks like there should be fruit, but there's nothing there. There's all this spiritual activity and it looks really, really great. We got a full house, but there's nothing going on in people's hearts. We've missed the heart of the matter. And so Jesus says, through his actions and through his words, God's judging this. It's time for a new wineskin. Again, it's 40 years before that's that judgment is executed, but he says it's, it's done. It's a done deal at this point. It's going to happen. A couple of things for us. As I was reading, I had a theological question and a practical question, so maybe this will scratch everybody's itch on one or the other. When I was reading through the, the triumphal entry, my question is, why didn't Jesus make himself more known? Why didn't he make himself known more clearly? If the Jews are gonna be judged based on what they do with Jesus, and that's true for all of us, everyone since the time of Jesus, we're judged based on what we do with him. Well, why doesn't he make himself more known? If his desire is for all people to be saved, then why doesn't he show up and blow everybody away? Why doesn't he overwhelm us with his power and with his presence? I don't know if you've ever thought of that. Right now, I think many of us are praying for people with Easter in mind. We said during Lent, we're praying for people who need Jesus, and you maybe are are desperate to see some people that you love who don't know Jesus come to faith, and that may be what you're praying. God, blow them away. Show up in a way that they can't deny you. Show up in an unmistakable, show up in an irrefutable, show up in an undeniable way. That may be what you're praying because you so desire these people to be saved, and and your thinking is that, man, if they could just see him, if they could just see him, then they'd say, yeah, so why doesn't he? What if you don't know Zechariah 9.9? Did you know that verse? What if you don't know that? He comes in on a donkey and you're supposed to connect the dots that that makes him the king. What if you hadn't gotten that far in the Old Testament yet? What are we supposed to do with that? And we've kind of seen that throughout Mark. Every time something good happens, Jesus says, shh, don't tell anybody. He makes claims, but the claims are, they're they're subtle, They're not direct, they're not overt. And the same thing happens in our life and in the lives of people we love. We want there sometimes to be a clearer revelation, a fuller picture, just blow them away. So what if God reveals enough of himself so that we can accept him, but not so much of himself that we must accept him? What if God leaves room for rejection in the equation? 
I think that's what he does. For us, at least for me, for a long time, I thought of salvation as avoiding hell. That was the thing. Paint this picture of hell and then say, you don't want to go there. Weeping, gnashing of teeth, flame that never goes out, dark, all of it. It's not where you want to be. And so salvation is just about avoiding that place. And so if that's true, then why doesn't God make it more plain to make Jesus uh, more plain, clear? He's the way out of that. He's the way to avoid that place. That's the goal. Just stay out of there and Jesus is the way to stay out of there. John 17, three says eternal life is knowing him. That changed everything for me, that one verse, flipping my understanding of salvation from avoiding hell to reconciled relationship. I don't know if that's how you think about it. When you think about your salvation or the salvation of people you love, do you think about them simply avoiding hell or do you think about them being reconciled to their father in heaven? They're not necessarily the same thing. Jesus absolutely died for our sins, but that's just the first step. He died for our sins in order to make relationship possible. Sin is the block between us and God. So Jesus dies to to, to remove the block. Why? So then we can relate. The point is not, forgiveness is not the end. It's just the beginning. If you think of hell in terms of the absence of God, God is the source of all things good. So hell is the absence of good. It's gonna be a miserable place because God's not there. Why isn't God there? Because he's created a place for people that don't wanna be with him. And if he's not there, then there's nothing good there. Hell becomes a byproduct of lack of relationship with God. Does that make sense? It changed everything for me when I began to think of salvation in that context. I think it's biblical. If I read Genesis 1 and 2 right, and I read Revelation 21 and 22 right, before sin entered the world, what God said is, I want to be with the people that I made. And after he's eradicated sin from the world, he's saying, I want to dwell with the people that I've made. I'm looking for relationship with my people. That's what I want. From Revelation, or excuse me, from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, the issue is sin has entered the world and has to be dealt with and is dealt with through the cross. But the point has always been God dwelling with his people. He's interested, invested, jealous for relationship with us. And so he reveals enough of himself that we can say yes, but not so much that we can't say no. Why? Because relationships, to be genuine, have to be freely chosen. You can't be coerced into a loving relationship. You know that's true. And he has revealed enough of himself. We saw last week, 12 guys, and none of them are Rhodes Scholars, Peter, James, John, Levi, Nathaniel, these guys, Judas. There's enough of, Jesus has revealed enough of himself to say, for those guys to say, yeah, I'll drop everything and follow you. They're part of a larger group of disciples. He revealed enough for me to say yes and for most of you to say yes. And we're not smarter than anybody else. We're not better than anybody else. We're not more insightful than anybody else. There's enough revelation out there. There's an interesting story in Luke. It's hard to know if it's a parable or if it actually happened about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. 
and, and they both die and, and Lazarus goes to heaven and, or excuse me, the, the poor Lazarus, yes, goes to heaven and, and, and the rich man who's unnamed, he goes to hell and he says to Jesus, send Lazarus back to tell my brothers. And Jesus says, no. If they won't believe what's already been revealed in the law of Moses, having somebody come back from the dead, it won't do it for them. We have in our mind, people just need more information. That's what they need. People just need more convincing. They just need more evidence. I don't know that that's true. It seems that what people need are hearts that are soft. We saw this a couple of weeks ago, the danger of the Pharisees. Their hearts had become stubborn, Mark 3, 5. They're, they closed their eyes and they were unwilling to open them. That's a dangerous spot to be when we're unwilling to open our eyes. And Jesus' response was that mad, sad, remember? He got angry and he was deeply grieved. He was angry because they refused to open their eyes and deeply grieved because he saw the end of that choice, where that would lead. He'd revealed enough of himself. He didn't have a sign that said, I'm the Messiah. He wasn't walking around with a crown on. But he'd revealed enough of himself that fishermen like Peter and Andrew and James and John could say, yeah, I'm in. I'll drop everything and follow you. And he does the same today. And I'm evidence of that and so are you. We want to maintain those soft hearts. Stubborn hearts, hard hearts, that's, that's the danger zone for us. When we have ears, but we're not willing to hear, or eyes, and we're not willing to see. You want to keep that your own heart soft. Ask the Lord. Give me eyes to see, and that's the prayer that you want to be praying for your loved ones. God, open their eyes. It's not, God, reveal yourself in a greater way. That's fine to pray, but just recognize what you're, what you're actually praying God, open their eyes. Open their eyes so they can see who you've already shown yourself to be. I had this practical question when I was reading the second. Why would Jesus expect figs when it wasn't the season for figs? That doesn't seem fair, does it? Again, he didn't hurt the tree's feelings, so it's not necessarily about the tree, but it's, that just doesn't seem like, why would he do that? You were hungry and there were no figs, and so you kind of got bent out of shape and cursed the tree. What's going on? There. Remember, it's a prophetic act. The tree is just a symbol of what Jesus is doing. But it did remind me of this, Mark 13. See if it resonates for you as well. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You don't know when that time will come. It's like a man going away, he leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned tasks, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you don't know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. That sounds a whole lot like coming up to a fig tree and expecting figs, whether or not it's a season, doesn't it? I don't know that there's this time. Actually, I do know. There is no time where it's okay for us to not bear fruit. If the fig tree is a, is a symbol of God's people, there is not a time where it's okay for us to say, well, I'm a, I, can take, I can kick back. I don't have to bear fruit now. Well, we don't know. And this isn't necessarily about when Jesus is returning. 
Well, that's what our pat. That's what that Mark thirteen passage is about. To me, it's an ongoing question. Am I bearing fruit? That's not pressure. John 15 says, if, I, if I'm abiding, I'm going to bear fruit. So it's not about me going out and making things happen. But if there's not fruit in my life, the first thing I need to do is check back to my connection and say, well, am I still abiding? Because if I am, there will be fruit. And I need to be abiding. That will produce fruit. And so then whenever Jesus returns, whatever that looks like in my life, there'll be something on the tree. I don't want to just have a bunch of leaves, a lot of activity, but no real fruit. I don't want to miss it, be the guy that I never miss a Sunday or I never miss a devotion or I never miss a small group, but there's no genuine fruit in my life. What does that fruit look like? We talked about this back in January. You don't remember. This is what we, we talked about fruit as character. Now, that's not a criticism. It's just true. I don't remember either. It's, it's character. It's part of it. It's Galatians 5, and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. But it's also, and, and this I think could be more helpful for us at times, it's, it's that definition of love from 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Am I growing? Am I becoming more patient and kind? Am I becoming less envious and boastful and selfish? Am I becoming less easily angered? Am I keeping a, a shorter record of wrongs? Am I becoming more gentle, more self-controlled? That's not day over day. It takes time, month over month probably, certainly year over year. Is there fruit in my character? And is there also fruit in my actions? Is there fruit in what I'm doing? And it's not about me going out and performing. Anything I do in my flesh by definition is dead. So for it to be fruit that's pleasing to the Lord, it has to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's prayer and obedience. You know how to do those things. I think, again, for us, where we live, one of the chief things that robs us of fruit production is it's just time. It's our schedules. We're so busy. Most of us go, can go easily a day, if not a week, without consciously engaging with the Lord in our activities. Again, we may, we may have a quiet time in the morning or a quiet time at night, and that's better than nothing. But once we're done with that, we're kind of on autopilot in a lot of ways. We're doing the things that are coming at us. We're just responding to situations as they arise. We're either putting out fires or spinning plates or whatever your picture is. But we're not actively saying, God, how do you want to use me? What does it look like for me to love, to serve, to bless these people in my life? A lot of times the people in my life, honestly, are getting in my way. There's things I'm trying to get done. They keep interrupting me. Again, don't, I don't want you to hear that as pressure. But it does make me think if Jesus can curse a fig tree for not having figs, even though it's not the season for figs. And people do try to get around that. You may have heard this idea. There's a picture there on the screen behind me that fig trees produce these little immature figs and then they have leaves and then those figs mature. So this is April. That's when Passover is. So there would be leaves and probably these immature figs that you could still eat. They weren't delicious, but you could certainly eat them if you wanted to. And that's what Jesus is looking for. But that's honestly us trying to make excuses for him because it seems not fair. And Mark doesn't let us. He says, it's not the season for figs. He wants us to know, in a sense, what Jesus is asking is not gonna, it's not there. 
Again, it's because it's a picture for us. He shows up in Jerusalem. He shows up at the temple, the heart of the faith of his people. And he's looking for fruit. They didn't know he was coming then. But that's no excuse. They didn't know the king was walking in the door that day. That's still no excuse. There's not a time where we can say, well, I don't have to, there there doesn't need to be fruit in my life. I'm on vacation. I did that last month. It's not my turn. I'm busy. I'm tired, whatever it is. Again, don't hear that as pressure. If you're abiding, you will produce fruit. You don't have to make anything happen. If we remain connected to him, we will see fruit. I'm starting to ramble. I'm going to pray. This is what I want you to do, if you would. I want you to think through both of those questions. I do believe there's some of you, it's, it's hard for you. There's people that you really, really love. And you honestly, if you were at your most honest, you would say God's not doing enough to save them. You know it isn't true, but in your mind, you think, I love them more than he does. If he really loved them, then, and you fill in that blank, what you would do if you were him. And if that's you this morning, I want to just invite you to engage that question with the Lord. Tell him. Just tell him, God, this is how I feel. I love this person. I know you love them too. It just doesn't seem like it. Ask him to help you know how to pray for them. Ask him what he sees when he looks at them. Ask him if there's anything he would have you do in terms of sharing with them. For a lot of people, Holy Week and Easter, it's just another week and a day on the calendar. But we know there's a lot of spiritual significance. And so we want to be prayerful this week. We'll open up the altar if you want to come and pray for those people that you love. Second thing I want you thinking about, fruit. It's probably, I think we, we've mentioned this before. I think it's helpful. I don't know that it, I don't think it's helpful to do it every day. I think that can be pretty neurotic. But I do think, you know, a few times a year, we'll say quarterly, it's good to step back and say, is there fruit in my life? Do I look more like Jesus on April 10th, 2022 than I did on April 10th, 2021? If the Holy Spirit's working within me, like he knows what he's doing, he's able to form and shape my character. So is that happening? Am I more patient? Am I more kind? Am I more gentle? More faithful? Am I more self-controlled? Am I, again, am I less irritable? Am I quicker to forgive? I'd encourage you just to ask. Not to beat yourself up, but just to say there should be fruit. 
You're abiding. There should be fruit. What about the impact you're having on others? This doesn't sound great. I can't unpack it, but I'll just say it. Like, are people better for having been with you? Are you someone who tends to pull people down or lift them up? And you can only do what you can do. But in general, when you're, when you're in the room, you impact, you affect the atmosphere. You make the atmosphere more loving, more holy, more righteous, or less. And again, don't hear that as criticism. It's just, it's a chance to step back and say, okay, is there fruit? And for many of you, the answer is yes. And you don't, that's, don't pretend there's not. It's just an opportunity. And if you feel like, honestly, not so much. You just reconnect. God, I want to abide in you. You say, if I do, I'll produce fruit. So where's the breakdown? What does it look like for me to, to abide in you, not just in a church service on a Sunday? What does it look like in a meeting on Monday for me to abide? And I want to produce fruit in that setting as well. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you encourage? Would you comfort? Would you correct as needed? Would you convict? Would you lead? Would you guide? Would you empower? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 